focus not on world events, but on the great I am. That you are the God sovereign over all things. You told us in the last days there will be these things that come to pass. These things are going to happen. But that we don't have to be worried. We don't have to be afraid. That you are the great I am and you are in control of all things. Father, I thank you that every person here has come with a different story and a different background. And I just pray today that as, as you've inserted yourself into their story, that you would give them peace, you would give them joy, let them have certainty, Lord, today, no matter what challenge they face in front of them. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would remind us again from your word who you are and what you want to do in our lives. Take the word now and change our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today, we're going to talk about love. Love. Our, our statement, our vision statement says, love God, love people, and be transformed. And I want to talk a little bit about what love means today. When we say the word love, many things come to our mind. I want to share some quotes from the perception of kids. This is love according to kids. Concerning the origins of love, Julio, age nine, said, Cupid kissed God and that got the ball rolling. Why love happens between two people? Andrew, age six, says, one of the people has freckles, so we find someone else who has freckles too. May, age nine, says, no one is sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. Manuel, age eight, says, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. <laughs> On the role of beauty and handsomeness in the role of love, it said, Anita, age eight, says, if you want to be loved by somebody who isn't already in your family, it doesn't hurt to be beautiful. <laughs> Brian, age seven, said, it isn't always just how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome like anything, but haven't gotten anybody to marry me yet. And then Christine, age eight, says, beauty is skin deep, but how rich you are can last a lifetime. <laughs> how do people in love typically behave? Well, according to Arnold, age seven, says, mushy like puppy dogs, except puppy dogs don't wag their tails nearly as much. Concerning why lovers often hold hands, Gavin, age eight, says, they want to make sure their rings don't fall off because they pay good money for them. How to make a person fall in love with you? Alonzo, age nine, said, don't do things like have smelly green sneakers. He said, you might get attention, but attention ain't the same thing as love. How to make love last? How to make love last? This is great advice. Dave, age eight, says, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, as we grow older, 
We become more refined in our understanding of love. But to really understand love, true love, we must look at the creator of love, God, and his description of love in his words in the Bible. Today, we're going to look at nothing to it. And I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to do a two-part series this Sunday and next Sunday. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, page 932 in in the Bible in the rack in front of you, if you're looking for it there. 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 1. We're going to read just the first eight verses this morning. I think we have more than that on the, on the PowerPoint. We'll read just verse 1 through 8a. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love. What is love? Love is not just an idea. Love is not just the motivation for behavior. Love is the behavior. Love is the action. Love here is not to be contrasted with spiritual gifts. Love is in a different category altogether. Love is the way in which spiritual gifts, which are the abilities and opportunities that we all have to exercise in our life and in the body of Christ, it's how they are to be operational or to function. Love is the foundation of the spiritual gifts, so the overarching principle or context. Love permeates, it flows through spiritual gifts, which are gifts in action. Now, in 21st century America, love can mean a lot of different things. It can mean emotions, warm fuzzies, affection. It can mean concern. And I'd like to look at a little bit more precise definition of love as we look at, first of all, the three words for love. Three words for love. In the Greek language, the original language in which the New Testament was written, there are three words for love, a much more precise way to define love. The first one, letter A, was eros, which is physical or sensual love, eros. The second one, letter B, was phileo, which is brotherly love or platonic affection. And these two words were used predominantly by secular Greek writers to describe love. But the writers of the New Testament did not use these two words very often in describing love. The Greek word that the New Testament writers used most often was the word agape, which is selfless love, selfless love. Agape is love defined by God's action in sending Jesus Christ into the world. It's love acted out. It's an action word. It's loving those who did not deserve love, loving those who were unworthy of love, love that puts others' interests first, love that forgave people, give us a new start, love that sacrifices for the good of others, love that comes from the nature of the lover rather than the merit of the loved. In other words, it's undeserved love. Undeserved love. That's agape love. Now, with that kind of love, we're going to look at three things. 
we're going to look at, this week we're going to look at the importance of love and the character of love. Next week we're going to look at the permanence of love. And this is a classic text really for the 4th of July weekend where we celebrate the love and the sacrifice of our founding fathers because it was their love and their sacrifice that made the founding of this nation possible. Well, let's start with the importance of love. Our lives consist of action, what we do. And as a followers of Jesus, most of us try to do good things. Okay? Our desire is to do good, to have a positive impact. There's not many of us that would say, you know, I'm trying to be the worst parent possible. Or I'm going to try to be the worst employee on record. Or I want to have the reputation as the worst neighbor my people, my friends have ever seen. Or the worst student or an evil person. No. All of us desire to be good and do good. And this was written to a Corinthian church. It was a church in Corinth, a part of Greece. And these people wanted to be good and do good. But Paul says this. He says, there's a missing ingredient in all your good works. In all the exercise of your faith and your religion, there's a missing ingredient. That missing ingredient was love. It was love. Then he gives four areas in which love is missing. Now, we're going we're to talk very briefly about some of these because uh, we'll be talking more about um, tongues, particularly later, um, we get into the fall and prophecy and some distinctions on that. But we start with the verbal gifts. These Corinthians were exercising verbal gifts, and one of them was tongues. Uh, these people were exercising their gift for their own good, for their own benefit, to build themselves up. It was all about them, okay? Um, but he says, if you speak in tongues and use the gift of tongues without love, you're just noise, okay? You're just noise. You're just like a clanging cymbal. Love says, I exercise my gift, whatever it may be, for the benefit of other people actively seeking to build them out. He says, without love, there's nothing to it. Then he talks about prophecy, number two, prophecy. Now, prophecy is defined as speaking forth God's word. This also, prophecy is a huge topic, and we don't have time to get into it today. But very simply, prophecy is God taking a human instrument and speaking his word to the contemporary generation of that person, okay? In other words, God wants to speak, so he takes a human instrument and uses that to speak truth to people. The primary recipients of all prophecy is the immediate generation. But prophecy is also multidimensional and can include future fulfillments as well, sometimes more than one fulfillment. It's, it's a very complex topic as we go. But prophecy, we always think it's, prophecy is foretelling the future. How many of you thought that when I said prophecy? Okay. It's basically speaking forth God's word. And in the context of when prophecy is given, it's predictive in that it tells people this is what God says. It's predictive in the fact that if you don't obey what God says, this is what's going to happen. Does that make sense? God says this, obey him. If you obey him, this is what will happen if you disobey him. That's what will happen. And we tend to think of all prophecy as future telling, but it's not. It's God speaking his word to us today. The predictive nature of it, if we fail to obey God, this is what will happen. Speaking God's word to the people of the contemporary generation. Now, most prophecy, as we see it today, is, is done from the pulpits of America in, in the world, from the pulpit, in other words, the preaching of the word of God, declaring the word of God. 
That's primarily. Now, there's, there's direct revelation. There are all kinds of different aspects to prophecy. But it's basically God speaking through a human instrument to human beings. Now, it's not a matter of this gift or love, or even this gift motivated by love. Some people were exercising this gift of prophecy without any love at all, without any regard for people. They didn't care about it. They just were trying to declare the word of God. Prophecy must be done by a person whose life is given to love. And if prophecy is not given, if we don't declare the word of God in love as part of love, then there's nothing to it. He says it's worthless. It equals zero before God. Ephesians 4.15 talks about it. He says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up. And I have to ask myself every week, not is my sermon eloquent or is it really a bad sermon? But the question is, am I speaking the truth in love? Is this generated from love? We will all talk about principles of morality, right and wrong and encouragement. And as you share the word of God, as you share your faith and share other things with other people. The question is, am I sharing this out of love? Because without love, he says there's nothing to it. It's like zero. Those are the verbal gifts. Then we have letter B, the cerebral gifts. The cerebral gifts, or the mental gifts. Verse two talks about mysteries and knowledge. They all knew mysteries, they all had knowledge. And the, the Corinthians were enamored with knowledge. They wanted to know mysteries. And, and you may know people like that. They look for the mystical and they want more and more knowledge. Can we relate? Well, you know what? We study the Word of God. We know the mysteries of God. We know theology. And we ought to be seeking theology and learning more about God and more about the Word of God and, and learning lots of teaching. But sometimes we know it all. But if we don't have love, he says it's zero. Some people have all this knowledge and all this knowledge of mystery and no theology and no everything about God, but there's no love. And he says without love, it is worthless. Then there are the faith gifts. Faith gifts, let us see. It says if you have faith powerful enough to move mountains, faith for great things, but if you have love, if you don't have love, it's worthless, worthless. Letter D, there are the giving or sacrificial gifts. In verse three, he talks about these examples of great personal sacrifice. Giving everything to the poor, sacrificing my body. And he says, if there's not love based foundationally, there's nothing to it. Now, the Corinthian church had all the religious trappings. They had tongues and prophecy, knowledge, faith. They had asceticism, self-denial. But God was not impressed. God was not impressed. They didn't have the ultimate Christian ethic, which is love, love. And God says, there's nothing to it. It's empty, it has no effect, no lasting results. We as a church, we can have all the spiritual trappings. And most churches have all the trappings. We have church attendance, we have church involvement, great worship, wonderful programs. We give of our tithes, we give to missions. We volunteer our time to the needy. We even abuse ourselves physically by overwork or fasting or self-denial or personal sacrifices. And we look at all the things we do and he says if, it's not, if there's not love, it's worth nothing. There's nothing to it. Now, as we walk through the next verses describing the character of love, uh, realize that none of us can all measure up. 
completely, okay? So don't feel like, oh no, man, I'm, I'm, I'm toast. No. When we're looking at these things, these are things that only can happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. The question we ask is, where do I fall short? As this describes love, where do I fall short? And where can I, by God's help and grace, develop and improve? Paul moves on to describe love in actions and attitudes. Now, it may be difficult to define love, but it's easy to recognize by what, the way it acts. So let's look at the character of love. There are 15 characteristics. We're going to look at nine of them today. Nine of them today. Otherwise, you'd be late for brunch and nobody would forgive me. So, so my, my love will be demonstrated by letting you out after nine. Okay, here we go. Love is number one, patient. <clears throat> now, that's not so much patience with circumstances, although it includes that, but it's really patience with people. Patience with people. Charlie Brown famously said in a Peanuts cartoon, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. You know, it's this abstract mankind, but people. Patience with people. People come up short. And most often for me lately, I find myself in the checkout line wherever it is where they're training somebody. Okay? You know, I, I just wait. You know, God, God knows that I need to develop patience because I'm, I'm, I'm headed this direction. I'm, I'm task-oriented. And it comes up, and all of a sudden, things stop, and the, the, the cashier says, one moment, please. And they get the phone and call, and they say, no, I can't find this. And the person comes over, and I'm going, okay, why didn't I get in the other lane? I didn't see trainee on their line, you know, whatever. But that's, that's my story, okay? I don't know what your story is, how God trains you. But patience with people. There are people that try our patience. And Gordon Fee says, love is patience, love is kind. And they represent love's necessary passive and active responses. King James talks about it's suffering long. I, I, I kind of like that word for patience, suffering long. It suffereth long. And God demonstrates this combination of patience and kindness. Patience is holding back his wrath in the face of rebellion. I don't know how many times you've prayed that God would swallow somebody up. Have you ever done that? I wish God had just... Just swallow them up and take them out, you know. Um, um, God is patient. That's why it hasn't happened yet, okay? God is patient. And then there's kindness, which is the extension of God's grace. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of the mercy. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve, and grace giving us what we do, we do not deserve. Let me say that again. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. Okay, what we really deserve is to be swallowed up and destroyed or whatever from our actions. We deserve judgment. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. We have so many gifts that are given to us. And love is patient. That's, that's the mercy. The love is kind, the second one, is the active side of patience. Kind. This is, a, this is an action taken. Uh, it's gracious. Many times in the practice of our faith, um, being concerned about morality and right and wrong, we're anything but kind. Anything but kind. Sometimes we're more concerned about being right than being kind because there's no love. Graciousness means an active, not passive, actively engaged in doing good to others. And the Corinthians' beliefs were contradicted by their, their selfish behavior, specifically at their church potlucks, or the common meals, or brunches, or barbecues, whatever they had back then. Now, we're going to move on to seven verbs that indicate how love is 
not to behave. Okay, this is what love is not. Okay, love is first of all number three. This is number three. Love is not envious. Not envious. The root words mean envious or rivalry. In other words, love is not jealous. It's been said that there are two classes of people in the world, millionaires and those that wish they were. Okay? I don't know if that's true, but envy produces something called covetousness. Covetousness. There are two types of covetousness that come from this kind of an attitude. One is coveting the possessions that someone else have, has. It's very natural. We see it, we want it. If you don't see it, you don't want it. But you see it, you want it. Judy and I went to the Parade of Homes last weekend. Just got to a couple homes. And we're always very happy with what we have until we see something bigger, better, or newer. Anybody else have that problem? Okay, yeah. Don't go to the parade of homes. It's just, it's just you know. Yeah, you can get some good decorating ideas and building ideas. And yeah, you, you know, it's one of those things. Um, yeah. So, it can be a brand new house. It can be a new 4x4 pickup, the new BMW Boxster, the Corvette, the SUV, a boat, clothes. You can say, we see, we compare, and we covet. You know, we see what someone else has, then we go, I don't have that. We compare, then we covet. Covet. Now, the second kind of coveting is more insidious than wishing we had something someone else has. The second kind of coveting is seeing what someone else has and wishing they didn't have it. Ooh. Seeing what someone else has and saying, I wish they didn't have it. I wish I had it, I wish he didn't have it. Now, the Corinthians here were coveting the most dramatic spiritual gifts. They, they wanted to be somebody. They wanted to be someone. And so they were coveting and they were jealous about other people's gifts. Coveting springs from discontent. In what ways are we not content? Any ways you're not content? What does someone else have that you want? Okay. Someone else has something you want. It's a, maybe it's a material possession or wealth. Maybe it's a training or degree. Maybe it's a job or profession. A position or an opportunity. A reputation, talents and abilities. Maybe it's their family background. Maybe it's the looks or physical appearances. Maybe it's their boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's rivalry and competition. See, there's always this comparison thing that we get into. What does someone else have that you want? Jealousy, rivalry, competition. We even have rivalry and competition between churches. I talked about that last Sunday, the fact that, that we're not in competition with other churches. We're in competition with the enemy. We are working together with churches and ought to support and celebrate when God sends more Christians and more ministries into Eau Claire. Exciting times. So love is not jealous, it's not envious, it's not competitive. Number four, love does not boast. How many of you like to look good? Anybody like to look good? Come on, yeah, yeah my hands up. We like to look good, okay? There's a tendency in all of us, if someone else is not making us look good or no one else notices, we'll call attention to it ourselves. Okay, I take matters into my own hands. And in, in the Corinthian church, there were some with spiritual gifts that were real, attention getters and people that had positions that made them look important. Many spiritual gifts are operated just to get attention, to say I'm important. Boasting or behaving as a braggart, a windbreak, it suggests self-centered actions where we try to call attention to oneself. Um, I want to tell a story about 
we look at the spiritual gifts, we usually think about teaching and prophecy and tongues and interpretation and, uh, you know, some of the bigger gifts. Um, there's one, of the, one major gift that, that we need. It's called the gift of helps, okay? It's just kind of buried in there, and people say, well, that must not be a very big deal. Let me tell you a story about a woman that had the gift of helps, okay? Her name was Grace, Grace Day, and she was elderly, and she couldn't get out much. And Grace via the phone, had the gift of helps, and she coordinated meals to people who needed help. They had surgery, they went to the hospital, they had a baby, whatever, and she would get on the phone and she would get those people bringing meals to the, to the family as long as they needed it, usually you know, might a week or two. We lived close to Fort Lewis, which was um, the military army post, um, uh, that was close to our church, and we had a lot of military people in our church, and, and we, had a, we had a young family out there that attended the church, and they had a neighbor whose mother had, the mother had cancer. She got cancer, so she was going in for treatments, and, and so Grace, Grace found out about it, and she got the crew ready, and so they were bringing meals out, and so they're driving all the way onto post, going through security, doing all that stuff, bringing meals to this to this this family. Well, this family thought it was amazing, but next door was another family, and they said, oh, they saw them bringing meals. They said, I didn't know you went to church. They said, oh, we don't go to church. I said, you don't go to church? No. Well, who is this? And they said, well, it's, said, it's this church, and they're bringing meals. And they were not the recipients of the love, but Grace, operating the gift of helps, was ministering to this family that needed need. Well, this, this lady next door got so curious, she said, i got to go visit that church. Says, they don't even go to that church, and they're bringing the meals. That's really weird. And so she went to church and came to Christ, didn't know Jesus. Two weeks later, she brought her kids. They came in the children's ministry. They got saved. So all of a sudden, there's this gift of helps that Grace is using, sending meals, and the mother and the two children came to Christ. Well, the guy, I don't know what it is about men, he, came, he got curious because he saw such a dramatic change in his wife. He said, there must be something to this. So he went to church and he, he found Jesus. A whole family came to Christ. Not because Grace had this great prophetic voice and you know, whatever that we think of this elevation of gifts. She had the gift of helps and very humbly, very lovingly exercised this gift of helps. A whole family came to Christ because of grace. That's just one family of many. She didn't need to boast. Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, someone else and not your own lips. Humility, self-effacing. We are all important in God's eyes. Love does not boast. Number five, love is not proud or arrogant. Pride here is the opposite of love. It means self-sufficiency or self-confidence. Most of us do not act arrogant. When I was a freshman in college and I knew everything, I was arrogant. But I was also smart enough to know that people don't like to be around arrogant people. So I was proud and arrogant, but I didn't show it. We can be proud and arrogant, self-sufficient, and we can hide it under a veneer of humility. Okay? It's, a, it's a great way to go. 
But arrogance and pride appear unspiritual. So we're like M&Ms. We have this arrogant core and a veneer like candy. It's like candy-coated Christians. And no matter what we hide with this, this candy coating, sooner, la- lo- sooner or later the candy coating will melt, just so you know. And people will see you for who you really are. Next, love is not rude, or love does not act unbecomingly. It's tactful, it's polite. Now, some will excuse telling the truth without tact as spiritual. They quote, the gospel is an offense, and they excuse being blunt or tactless or brutal. Love is not rude. Love is tactful. I think about the Sunday rush in restaurants. The Sunday rush in restaurants. I know some waiters and waitresses and wait staff in restaurants who hate working on Sundays. Why? Because the crowd is predominantly made up of Christians and church people. Their description is that people, these are people who are very demanding, arrogant, rude, impatient, and cheapskates. They're small tippers. There was one guy who bragged that he never left a tip of money. He left something of eternal significance, which was a tract. Well, leave some money with that tract, maybe they'll listen. Christians ought to be the biggest tippers in restaurants. Now, 15% is standard, 20 or 25% for great service. Love is not rude. Now, somebody said, I give God 10%, why give 20% in a tip? Well, are you tipping God? I hope not. God owns 10% at least of our gross income. Wait staff are given 15 to 20% of a meal charge. That's a big difference. Love is not rude. Love does not act unbecomingly. I hope if people ask, where did you go to service today? I hope you leave a 20 plus percent tip because they need to know that we are generous. Number seven, love is not self-seeking. Does not seek its own. It's not selfish. Our whole society is permeated by the self-seeking. Should not seek its own means it's not its own, but for the good of others. Gordon Fee says, in some ways, this is the fullest expression about what Christian love is about. It does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It's not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, or self-worth. We teach that happiness equals selfishness. There's a pastor named John Ortberg who wrote an article, I want to share parts of it with you today. It's called Happy Meal Spirituality. He says, when we take our children to the shrine of the golden arches, they always want the same thing. If they get it, the trip is a success. If not, it's sheer misery. The odd part is that they are not after the food. They want the prize. The prize itself is a pitiful thing worth maybe 10 cents. But for the moment, getting it is all that matters. McDonald's, in a fit of marketing genius, gave this package of food and prize a special name, the Happy Meal. You're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. You're buying happiness. Their advertisements have convinced my children that they have a McDonald's-shaped vacuum in their little souls. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in a Happy Meal. When you get older, you don't get any smarter. Your happy meals just get more expensive. All day long, we are bombarded with messages that seek to persuade us of two things, that we are discontented and contentment is only one step away. Use me, buy me, eat me, wear me, try me, drive me, put me in your hair. 
Aren't people healthier and cleaner and richer and smarter than ever? We live longer, eat better, dress warmer, work less, and play more than ever in the history of the human race. But are we happier? Or are we just cleaner, healthier, better groomed, and sad people? The truth is that contentment is never achieved by satisfying our desires. Desires, once satisfied, do not stay satisfied. And our society, so advanced in many other respects, seems to have lost touch with the simple truth we have made the quest to satisfy our desires the foundation on which we teach people to build their lives. This preoccupation with seeking contentment through filling desires has led to a profound change in the way we think about human beings. We now think of ourselves as consumers. We're consumers. In the past, human beings generally identified themselves by what they produce, what they contributed. The shift from finding identity in what we produce to what we possess from a work ethic to a consumption ethic. Consumerism is doomed to futility because to be made in the image of God does not mean primarily to be a consumer. The creation mandate, after all, was to be fruitful, not shop until you drop. The Happy Meal Society cannot produce contented people. Even the church can be co-opted into becoming just one more dispenser of happy meals. The contented person is not one who gets everything he or she wants. It is the person who has stopped wanting. Who is more contented? I've quoted this once before. Who is more contented, the man with a million dollars or the man with ten children? The correct answer, of course, is the man with ten children because he does not want any more. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not seek its own. Number eight, love is not easily angered. It's not provoked. does not fly into a temper. Christian love never becomes exasperated with people. Of course, we know that the Apostle Paul had no children. Judy said to me one day, I didn't know I had a temper until I had kids. I knew I had one long before that, but that's, that's, that's another story. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Proverbs 17.27, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. How many of you have or had kids in sports? Anybody? Good. I'm in good company. Good. Well, one of our, our oldest daughter's soccer coaches, Brittany's soccer coaches, advised us in a parents' meeting. He knew parents well. He said, encourage your kids, cheer for them, never yell any sentence that begins or ends with the word ref. That's hard when you have kids in sports. I was at a basketball game seated next to a young father and his five-year-old son. And this father could not comprehend the enthusiasm of some of the fathers in the stands with us. Translated, they were using sentences that began and ended with the word ref. So I asked him at halftime, I said, does your son play sports? He said, yes, we play golf. I thought, what does he know? Is golf a sport? There's, there's not even a ref to yell at. I mean, what's the deal? <laughs> Number nine, love keeps no record of wrongs. 
keeps no record of wrongs. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Take into account, the word denotes entering them into a ledger so we don't forget. Many of us keep a ledger. We keep a book. We take, take notes so we don't forget. We hold grudges so we can get revenge. That's not how love operates. Love forgives and love forgets. No records are kept. We don't keep track. In a marriage, we don't throw things up in the face of our spouse. It's not love. And you know what? Christians do some of the worst things to each other. That's life. Stuff happens. And love says, I will keep no record. I will forget. Who has done you wrong? Our example is Jesus, who gave no record of wrongs, kept no record of wrongs. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Next week, we'll finish the list. Let's pray.